Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. My current plan is for us to finish Isaiah on the last Sunday of the year, which is uh, pretty cool how that turned out. And then we'll be starting Galatians in at the beginning of the new year. So we have before us Isaiah 61 today. Before we come to it, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be here with us. We can't even really wrap our minds around the fact that we are reading, seeing, understanding, the words of the one true God of the universe. The one who spoke all things into existence has chosen also to give us words to live by, a gospel of salvation to see, to understand, to believe, has encouraged us for all time and for all eternity. And so as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us because it is far too great a task for people such as we are to even hope to do this alone. So we pray that as we open your word, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would convict us of our sin and that you would lead us to the truth that we might glorify your name in all the earth. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. So in order to introduce Isaiah 61, I'm going to read a few verses from Leviticus chapter 25. And you don't have to turn there with me. It's just two or three verses. But it will help to make sense a little bit of what we're going to be looking at. The title that I chose for today's message will also make a little bit more sense here. So Leviticus 25 verse 10 and then I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. Leviticus 25, verse 10 says, And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Then verses 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So what we have there in Leviticus 25, I encourage you to to, uh, commit that to your own personal study, that whole chapter, as it kind of lays out what the year of Jubilee is and the understanding of that. But the year of Jubilee was the 50th year, like it said, and it was a kind of a resetting so to speak, it was the it was the end of seven years of seven seven groups of seven. You know, it was, it was kind of the ultimate Sabbath. It was the 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 Sabbath day was kind of a reset for the week, but the Jubilee was kind of a whole Sabbath year, a whole year for resetting the land, like we read today that they're going to you know no one even owns the land. We're going to give it back to who who it goes to. Those who have been captive were all going to be set free. All those who owed money were no longer going to owe anything anymore. Many things were going to be 
reset on this year of Jubilee. It was a celebration for the people. It was a reminder that they were the people of the Lord and the Lord was good to them in all that he did. Even if, even if a family at some point over the course of that 50 years had sold its land in order to make money or in order to make ends meet, that land was given back to them. Because what did the Lord say? Well, all of that land is mine. Anyway, and so it's given back to its rightful owner. That concept of, of buying back or redemption is very powerful in the year of Jubilee. The word Jubilee literally means ram's horn because the ram's horn would be sounded to signify the start of this celebration. In our text today, we see this same idea front and center as Isaiah gives us more words that symbolize this kind of already not yet in the kingdom of God. For the people of Judah who would be released from exile, it was a kind of jubilee. The year the captives would be set free and the land of promise was going to be returned to them once again. Yet there's this strong connotation here in this passage that this return to exile is just a, a from exile is a real small picture of this overall greater redemption that's going to take place. And of course, we see this fulfilled directly in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who would take the ram's horn and sound it for all eternity. As we near Thanksgiving, there's also a song of Thanksgiving here for us as well. Because what other response should there be for the Lord making all broken things new again, including ourselves? As we dig into this passage, I think it's important for us to keep that idea at the beginning, at the front, because we struggle with believing that we are captive to something. We want to be captive to something, to the world, to the thoughts of people, to sin, to death. We struggle with this idea that we are no longer in Christ, we are no longer captives. Jesus has set us free. It's the plain message of the gospel. And we'll see that very plain in our text today in Isaiah 61. As we consider three main points, the proclamation of redemption, the results of redemption, and then finally the song of thanksgiving. So please stand with me as we read together Isaiah 61 in its entirety. Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak to you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in, the, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, 
there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, there shall, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in the land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have an everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and the garden causes what is sown to be to, to be sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for some context, again, Isaiah is preaching this message to people who are in exile, who long for redemption and restoration. They long to be set free, actually be set free from captivity. And what better message for them to understand that than a teaching on the year of Jubilee? Or as Isaiah says, the year of the Lord's favor. This is something that they hadn't experienced in years. Remember the Babylonian exile was a 70 year sort of thing. So they missed a year of Jubilee altogether. They may have even missed two. There would have been few there who even remembered what that was or even celebrated that and knew how wonderful it was. And so for them, they, they longed to be home. But for us to understand this fully, we also need to go to the New Testament and see where it is quoted directly by the one who says it here in Isaiah 61 also. And that's our Lord Jesus. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read from 14 through 30. I know that's a, a chunk, and a, but we need to get this understanding because here what the Lord is doing is he's quoting directly from Isaiah 61, words that he gave to Isaiah all those years ago. And what he's doing is he's beginning his ministry under this idea. And so I'm going to start at verse 14 and read through verse 30. And Jesus returned in the the power of the Spirit to Galilee to report a, to, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, 
This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard did not come, or what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up in three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's a whole lot there. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament. The reason I wanted us to read it is because it's important for us to understand the fulfillment of Isaiah's text here in Isaiah 61 and it provides us with a very full context, right? Literally both bookends. Remember, Jesus is preaching to a people there in Nazareth who were in captivity again, kind of, with Rome. Rome was, you know, it held, it held them basically hostage. They were free to express their religion, but they were still under the fist of Caesar. And you see this directly in the next 50 years when Israel or Jerusalem will just be destroyed by Rome. They were still hoping for a Messiah to come. And here he is. He stands up in their midst. He reads from the text of Isaiah. And he says, in, in, your, in your hearing, this text is being fulfilled. He's, he's signifying a return of the land to the people, the year of the Lord's favor. And what do they do? Well, this angered them. It angered them because they wanted something else. This is a room full of Jewish religious leaders, and they couldn't dream of Jesus being the speaker in Isaiah 61. They wouldn't dream of it. Jesus is going to be the one who would blow the ram's horn for the day of Jubilee. And when he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, essentially saying, this time that Isaiah is talking about, it is right now because I am here. So you can see why they questioned him. Isn't this Joseph's son? Not the coming Messiah? Do you see the difference there? And so when he spoke, notice Jesus' response to them. He spoke of only the Gentiles being blessed in the days of Elijah. And Elisha, that even though there were lots of widows, only this Gentile widow was blessed. Even though there were lots of lepers, only this Gentile leper was blessed. And they didn't like that. They wanted to kill him for it. It's important for us, as we get into Isaiah 61, that this message is loud and clear. That there is a year of the Lord's favor. But there is also a coming day of vengeance. We see this also in Isaiah 61. 
And we do well to understand both of these. This brings me to the first point, the proclamation of redemption, verses 1 and 2, back in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. So very full here. We're going to hit the high points as we go through there. First, there's this unannounced speaker all of a sudden just comes forward and says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And so who is this? We've heard this speaker before. We've read read about him in the servant songs in Isaiah. We saw him speaking before throughout the book of Isaiah. This is the Lord's anointed speaking. And the Hebrew term there is the term Messiah. So this is our Lord Jesus speaking all the way prior to the Babylonian exile through the prophecy of Isaiah. And he's making a proclamation concerning two things. The year of the Lord's favor, which again is considered to be that year of jubilee, and also the day of vengeance of our God, which is the final day of judgment elsewhere in Scripture is known as the the day of the Lord. And this isn't... and, And so what he's doing here is he's proclaiming that in this, the captive is set free. This is good news. This day of Jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor, this is good news to the poor and to the brokenhearted. This isn't a financially poor. This is the poor in spirit. Those that have been trampled down are now lifted up because not only is the day of Jubilee here, but also the one who could actually bring it forward to all eternity is here and he is proclaiming it. The worst kinds of things are now going to be completely reversed because of the work of this one who proclaims these things. Verses 3 and 4 continue this idea. To those who, to, to comfort those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Building up ancient ruins, raised up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Those who mourn will be comforted. And then you see all these symbols of mourning that are swapped for symbols of praise. Even ancient ruins, things that have been long abandoned. I mean, think of an ancient ruin in your mind. You're not thinking of something that people left yesterday. You're thinking of something that people, that people left a thousand years ago. It is now being restored. The devastation of many generations is now going to be erased. And notice, this isn't just for Israel, but the nations of the world are going to join in. We saw this in Isaiah 60, a picture of this. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. All are going to come in and celebrate this. This is what made the Pharisees want to stone Jesus, reminding them of the blessings of the covenant. It's not as if they didn't know this, 
the blessings of the covenant were for, for, for the whole world. Elijah and Elisha's ministries saw Gentiles being blessed. And even some of them, even some of the worst Gentiles. If you read the story of Naaman in particular. How much more then would the ministry of the true seed of Abraham bring blessing to all the children of the whole world, fulfilling the promises that were given to those patriarchs? And that's where we come in, right? This idea that there are other nations that are going to be blessed. We've been grafted in. Because of that, we share in this great blessing. And while we await the day when this will finally be realized, we live right now in a time of great blessing and redemption. The proclamation of freedom to the captives is also right now. Just like the land is being returned to its original owners in the year of Jubilee. What did he say? Why is that happening? Because the land is mine, says the Lord. The people of God, who are also his, are being delivered out of bondage, set free to their God. They've been his since the foundations of the world, we're told. And they're being set free. So then when we choose, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. So we're set free in Jesus. So when we choose to live as captives, we choose to deny the fact that we've already been bought with the blood of Jesus. And we need to come back to the fact that the day of our redemption is here. And that brings me to the point, of, or the second point, the results of redemption. Look with me at verse 7 again. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Think of Israel and their entire trajectory. They had once been the, the envy of many other nations at their height. And then they were split in two. And each one of those individual nations were taken over. First the northern kingdom by Assyria, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, by Babylon. And now Isaiah is prophesying this future day when Judah is going to be set free. He's explaining their captivity. They don't even know it's going to happen yet. It's many years in the future. And he's telling them also that they're going to be set free. And notice with this freedom, verse 7, there's no shame in being set free from captivity. There's no dishonor. It may have been really easy for them to feel that shame and dishonor because they went from the height of under David and Solomon as being this great kingdom that others look to, and now they're brought completely low in their exile. I mean, think of it. This is just two tribes. Judah and Benjamin. The other tribes are now called lost tribes. They're just gone. This is a shameful thing. It would have been hard for them to hold their heads up even as they walked back to Jerusalem. Yet here, we are told that their shame is exchanged for a double portion, speaking of the land. And that their dishonor, instead, now they have rejoicing. Rather than simply getting their... Instead of getting their old reality back again, they're going to get this new reality in which they're going to thrive. And I think for Christians, 
we struggle with this idea more than anything else. This is at, this is at the root of all of our sin, really. And it typically takes a few forms in the church today. One of them we saw with the Pharisees in Christ's day in Luke chapter 4. Because with the Pharisees, think about what's going on there. They have this great tradition. This, they have literally God's very words that they, that they've been entrusted with. And yet they're captive to the Rome, to Rome, which is just completely pagan. And so in their shame and dishonor, rather than placing their hope in the Messiah and then recognizing him as such, they reach for anything that they could, that they could somehow gain some, some honor back and they grab the wall. And then rather seeing its fulfillment in Christ and in his coming and finding him as a balm for their shame and for their dishonor, they wanted him killed instead. They wanted to do it directly all the way back there in Luke 4, and they eventually do it. This is rampant in the church today. There are some places that preach and teach this, this rank heresy of salvation by works, and we're, we're familiar with that. But you don't really hear a lot of guys standing up behind the pulpit saying you're only saved by works. It usually doesn't take that form, but instead it's usually when we take some other little something and we make it the thing that covers our shame. Rather than letting Christ come in and do that, we take some other little something and we say, this is the thing that I'm going to get honored for. This is the thing that I'm going to find redemption for. I think Reformed folks are really good at this. We use the Reformed faith as this. We'll even use something that's really good and that we really believe in here as a church, expository preaching. We'll use it as our little thing. And we'll use it not only to cover our own shame, but we'll use it as a way to judge others too. Ah, look at us. No shame because we have such good doctrine. That's, that's not the point. We miss it completely. And in society, and a lot of churches have grabbed a hold of this, even an issue like, like race is being used in the church to create a new kind of gospel that can somehow dispel the shame. This new gospel says that if you aren't preaching against racism weekly, then you aren't even preaching the gospel. It's not enough to be non-racist. You have to actively be anti-racist in all that you do. So they grab this false gospel in order to cover their own shame, and then they use it to judge others. I just gave you two examples. We could go on and on and on with examples about how we do this. Because we'll take anything rather than Jesus. We'll, push, we'll take Jesus off to the cliff in order to throw him over, in order to take something else that we think will cover us. Anti-racism, reformed theology, we'll take just about anything instead of him to cover our shame. Reformed theology is good. Being against racism is good. But those things aren't the gospel. The fact that Jesus came to redeem a people for himself, that he became sin, that they might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not my beliefs, not my morality, and not my traditions. 
So when we read, instead of shame, there shall be a double portion. That right there, brothers and sisters in Christ, is when we get Jesus. Instead of shame, we have Jesus. Instead of dishonor, we have rejoicing in the only name that deserves rejoicing. Jesus Christ. And to that end, we owe him all the gratitude we could possibly muster. We should be doing good things. Not to earn his favor. He's already proclaimed the year of favor. It had nothing to do with us. In fact, he proclaimed that while we were yet his enemies. So he didn't look at our good works and said, yeah, I think this is going to be a favorable year. He made it such. It was fulfilled in his ministry on earth. We live in the middle of that now. And now the good that we do, we offer to him as a thanksgiving offering. And that brings us to the last point, the song of thanksgiving. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden cause, causes what is sown to be sprout to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So notice we have a speaker change here. The Lord Jesus had been speaking, and now the speaker shifts to one who has received all of those blessings, and he is offering this response of gratitude and thanksgiving. Israel greatly rejoices and exults in their God. And notice the language here. A lot of what we read has to do with them changing their clothes. Because a change of clothes denotes a change in status. A lot of you probably know that when I was a college student here, I worked at a local restaurant called Hardy's. And Hardy's had a uniform. And it was black pants and a shirt that said Rock and Roll Hardy's on it. It was called Rock and Roll Hardy's back then. I don't know why, but maybe because we had a motorcycle in there. But that was probably about it. And when I put that uniform on, I didn't just wear it any day, right? Because I wouldn't, that was kind of gross. So I didn't wear it just any day. But when I put it on, I became Mike, the Hardy's worker. And later, when I took it off, I was just playing Mike again. For a moment, when I put that uniform on, I was something else entirely. There was a status change that took place. The blessings of the Messiah initiate a status change in us. And it isn't just any status. Notice what these garments are called. This isn't just feel-good sort of things. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness and then you have this language of a wedding where the the beautiful headdress for the groom and the jewels for the bride a garment of salvation a robe of righteousness in christ we have his righteousness we have his salvation As the bride of Christ, we have been adorned 
with the finest of treasures. Why? Because we are so special to him. And with his righteousness, this isn't just something that we get to say, yep, there it is. And we take it back off and become regular old Joes again, because that's not how it works. With his righteousness, our status has been completely changed from enemies of God to joint heirs with the only begotten son of God. How can that possibly be? Because he did it. He changed us. He took our sin. We became the righteousness of God. So that when the day of the Lord, this day of vengeance that he speaks of here comes. And it's coming. We're not going to be the objects of his wrath. We're not going to be the ones that he is going to take all of that out on. Instead, we're going to be the opposite of that. We are the ones for whom he delivers his wrath. Vindication is what it's called. The world who killed the son, who troubled the people of God, would now face their recompense. They will now face their God. And this is important because if you're here and you don't know the speaker, if you don't know Jesus, this is your faith. It doesn't matter really what you believe about him. These things are coming to pass. This great day of Jubilee, while the people of God will celebrate and are judged according to the righteousness of God, praise be to God that that's the truth. Anyone who is not in Christ will be judged according to their own righteousness. And you'll be found wanting. You'll have a garment of wrath, robes of depravity. And they won't help you. They will only condemn you. That's the only thing they can do. Rather than face a just and holy God, call upon the name of Jesus Christ to receive salvation. Cast off your own righteousness and take up the righteous robes of Jesus Christ our Lord. But for those of us who are in Christ, notice what else happens in us. Not only is our status changed, but also our behavior is changed too. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. Before all the nations. Though we may not always praise him and thank him as we ought to. So that the Lord himself causes these things to happen. Even go out from us. Even in spite of ourselves. So that the nations of the world will know who the true God of the universe is. Even when we are at our lowest. He still gets glory. Which is just incredible. And this is a relief. To us as believers, because now that this is true, we don't have to worry about earning a status before him. It's always ours in Christ. Even in our lowest day, we, we don't become lower to him. And there's nothing that can take that away from us, even our own struggles, even our own difficulties. And so in conclusion... Let us be ones who embrace the blessings of the Messiah, who instead of shame, we rest in Christ. Instead of dishonor, we find honor as the children of a king. And let us be a voice to the nations, telling him about the great day of Jubilee, 
that is there for those who believe. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you as those who many times would take anything beside you in order to deliver us from the shame that we feel, the dishonor that we feel. And so, Lord, we pray for your help that you would change us, that you would cause us to only trust in you rather than grab for things that are fleeting, that we would rest in you, the comfort you bring, that you would continue to comfort us as we live in a lost world and that we would give this message of comfort and hope to those who are dying. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.